and welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Tamara Johnson. Last month, a paper came out in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences describing a potential application of neuroscience to the legal system. It turns out that activity in a part of our brain called the anterior cingulate cortex is very strongly correlated to a person's likelihood of committing and going to jail for a new crime after being released from prison. The anterior cingulate cortex is involved in decision-making and impulse control, and low activity in this region is a powerful predictor of rearrest or recidivation. This is really interesting as a standalone fact, but I think it's also fascinating to consider what should be done with this fact. On the one hand, if it's your job to assess whether someone up for parole will act violently or behave safely after being released from jail, you want to base your decision on as much information as possible and to have the most reliable information that you can. The choice will have a huge impact on the future of the person in question, as well as the futures of the people who might interact with this person in the future. On the other hand, I have read enough dystopic sci-fi books in my day to jump pretty easily from the idea of prediction in this context to worrying about, you know, creepy pre-crime scenarios. Could relying on neuroscience to make predictive legal decisions about someone's likely future behavior go really wrong? To flag the answer in advance, and I'm sure Kent would agree, the answer is yes, that would be very much a problem because this is only one piece of information, but it's not slam dunk. That was Professor Owen Jones, director of the MacArthur Foundation Research Network on Law and Neuroscience. He'll be joining us in a little while. First, though, we're going to talk with Dr. Kent Keel. Dr. Keel is one of the authors on the Recidivation Prediction Study and the Executive Science Officer of the Mind Research Network, a research group based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He'll be talking about his work and its implications. Dr. Keel, could you please describe this study? In that study, we had about 100 inmates who had volunteered to participate in you know, a research and treatment program that we were conducting. And as part of that study, um, they volunteered to get, uh, you know, to do an MRI session to study the brain's impulsivity systems, the brain's um, kind of reward systems, and, and also some emotional studies. And well, what we did is um, those first 100 inmates that volunteered, um, we went ahead and followed up once they were released and found out that a high proportion of them had committed new crimes following release from prison out almost four years, looking out about four years. And then we asked the question, does impulsivity predict recidivism in inmates um, following release from prison? And impulsivity can be measured a variety of different ways. Psychology classically assigns and assesses impulsivity by having you fill out a pen and paper test that says, you know, well, I don't make good decisions. I've actually been bankrupt before. You know, I've, I've had lots of relationship problems, et cetera. And we could quantify your impulsivity that way. Or I could actually maybe give you some games or tasks that would actually assess how many mistakes you make. And that would be another proxy for measuring impulsivity for you. And then finally, what we did in this study that was different was we used a brain scanner, an MRI, and we measured functional brain imaging. That is where in your brain is engaged while you're doing certain tasks. And we used one of these tasks that measures the impulsive systems of the brain. And it turns out that those measures, the measures of brain activity, are really, really predictive of whether or not you would reoffend following release from prison, um, even above and beyond the other measures that we use to quantify impulsivity, like the games and the um, personality tests. So w what we think this means is that, you know, as psychologists, the more accurately we can measure some construct, and ostensibly brain activity is a very 
nice way of measuring the construct of interest, in this case it was impulsivity, that's going to be very useful for predicting um, what's going to happen in the future. So we took anterior cingulate activity as the proxy for measuring inhibition and or impulsivity. And with those that were in the top half of the distribution, they were about a third of them recidivated, whereas in the bottom half of the distribution, more than two-thirds uh, recidivated. So it was a, it was a big effect. Um, you're a lot more likely to reoffend if you had low cingulate activity than if you had high cingulate activity. Um, and so that, that's the essence of this study. It just found that measures of brain activity were um, up to four and a half times more predictive of who was going to recidivate or not um, than the other measures that we used. Is the application of this correlation potentially problematic? Could brain imaging results end up being used against people unfairly? So I don't think this science that we're doing today is going to be used in a, in a, in a punitive fashion for individuals or anything like that. Um, but remember, the converse to that is always that half the offenders are now low risk. You know, so we, you know, you, you have a client that you want to get a scan done, or let's say, you know, you're going to find out that, um, you know, maybe they're going to be a low risk client and their parole board is going to release them early. What about people who are identified as high risk? What happens then? I prefer to use it, the, the term risk needs assessment because what, when you identify that someone has a high risk variable, say it's they're young or say it, that they're, you know, impulsive. You want to develop a, a strategy as a parole board or as a parole officer to remediate that risk, right? So for us, what we really hope to do is now, now we, we can identify and have a way of helping to understand systems of the brain that might promote risk um, for recidivism or you know, poor decision-making. And what we want to do is identify different types of treatment programs that might actually really exercise, um, train, educate, if you will, these brain systems so that we can try to reduce the chances that the offender will come back to prison. And we think there are certain forms of cognitive behavioral therapy, perhaps mindfulness meditation techniques, um, and, and other techniques like that. They're non-invasive. They're, they're simply helping to you know, retrain the way you think, basically. And that those, those techniques might actually be designed to operate on the systems that we found were problematic, and that could really help the offenders, which, of course, then obviously helps society. You know, even the inmates, they don't want to be there. They, they, they always tell us, you know, we love doing this research because if you can do anything that can help me not come back to prison, I'm all for it. What if we had a pill that could remediate that risk? What if there's a pill I can give you that increases activity in the cingulate and helps you be a little bit less impulsive? If you take that pill, you're going to be back in the low-risk category again. Would you take the pill? All the inmates say yes. I mean, they'll say, of course I would. You know, that, that's, now that's just a little futuristic at this point, but that's, that's kind of where you're going. It's, it, it is the science, I think, that is um, likely to succeed or follow the work that we did here. Where do you see the place of neuroscience in the legal system? And how do you think law should accommodate changing scientific understandings of behavior and the brain? Well, I mean, neuroscience is already there. I mean, there's already some like 10,000 cases in Westlaw in which brain scans are used in the legal system. So it's, it's already, you know, at the forefront. Um, I mean, I lecture at least once a month, um, sometimes two or three times a month to judges and lawyers and um, federal, state, probation, mental health, about the issues of neuroscience and law and what we can use neuroscience to help understand. And I think there's a general kind of a, an appreciation and a development of a whole new field um, a, about how uh, neuroscience is um, altering, changing, you know, reconstructing certain aspects of, of the legal system. I mean, there's been a lot of inroads made recently with 
um, you know, juvenile offenders and neuroscience is used in all of the, and cited by the Supreme Court um, in terms of its understanding about brain development and juvenile responsibility and culpability for sentencing laws. It's the same thing when you think about like Atkins v. Virginia, which is a decision the Supreme Court made a few years ago to eliminate the death penalty for low IQ offenders. Why? Because their brains are very different. And there's a lot of neuroscience that shows how they're different, how they've developed differently. And I think those same principles can apply to a lot of other populations that the public might not necessarily understand that well, be that a patient with severe mental illness, be that someone with substance abuse, be that someone with post-traumatic stress disorder or traumatic brain injury, or be that psychopath that I study. I think that they're individuals that have very complex biologies and brains, and as we learn to understand more and more about them, um, using largely, I think, neuroscience techniques as well as other behavioral techniques, it, it really does change the way people view and understand mental illness and addiction and other problems. So there's actually been a series of papers published by my group and others, uh, my collaborators and others, um, that has shown that at the state level, um, at the jurist level, that a better understanding of mental illness, psychopathy in particular, um, does lead to um, less severe sentences and less likely to commit um, individuals to death penalty and, and capital kind of litigation. So I think neuroscience, um, it, it, I mean, if it's good science, if it's done well, I think it does help generally improve um, people's understanding. Um, and that's, that's something that, um, you know, I think neuroscience has a great promise for helping to, to carve out different things. I mean, now we have drug courts. Now we have a, a wide variety of different types of ways of helping to adjudicate individuals with different problems. And, you know, th those are based on a better understanding of those problems. And so I think neuroscience can definitely, um, it, it is one um, way that we can help to do that. Um, in terms of critics, other types of things, I think there's a lot of science that still needs to be done. I definitely agree that not all neuroscience is ready for the courtroom. Most of it's still, you know, in a pretty experimental research phase. And, and in particular, you know, our work here, you know, this is the first study that's ever shown brain scans predict recidivism. It's not ready to be used by a judge tomorrow. Um, it's ready to be, you know, considered thoughtfully for developing, I think, new treatment programs or to develop, you know, new science that might build upon it. But it's, it's not ready to be making decisions. But then, you know, the counters is when you give lectures to federal judges and you sit there and you have a beer with them, you know, after the talk and they, they look at you and they say, you know, the single biggest problem I have is to know if the guy that's standing in front of me um, I could sentence him to life in prison or I could sentence him to home, home arrest. I need to know if he's going to act. I don't know the answer to that question yet, but the judges are making very tough decisions with imperfect data. And so as a scientist, if I can help provide them with better data, um, then that's what they want. And that's what the system needs. The more accurate, the better the data that we can provide to the judicial decision makers, the better society will be. And the better, hopefully, treatment programs will be developed. You know, you have to be careful. You can't overstate what the science is capable of doing. Um, but there are some pretty neat, exciting things that it can do and show. And I think this paper that we just published was one of them. But whatever it is, um, it's going to help. It's going to make it a better place. It's a fascinating study. Thank you so much. Okay, so for me, this raises so many interesting questions. The legal system assumes we're responsible for our actions, but how does this assumption stand up to explanations of behavior based on brain activity instead of personal agency and choice? Now we're going to talk to Professor Jones to help us navigate this issue, as well as some others that emerge from the intersection of neuroscience and the law. To start off, exactly how does neuroscience get applied in legal decision-making? So neuroscience has at least two main 
applications in legal decision making. One is in the adjudication context where people are litigating, and that could be a civil case, like over uh, someone's brain injury and they're trying to get damages for, for someone's injuring them. Or it could be a criminal case in which someone, for example, is introducing brain scans in an effort to try to mitigate a sentence. The other major category of potential application in legal decision-making concerns the way our legal system makes policies. So, for example, in um, how to define the nature of disabilities for the purpose of disability benefits if people have mild brain injuries and that sort of thing. So just to be really clear, how is neuroscience presented in courts? Are we just talking about fMRIs or are there other forms of data coming into play? Well, that's an, that's an excellent question. So lately, it's been increasingly the case that people have been trying to introduce highly vivid images like those produced by fMRI into various court proceedings. But neuroscience itself, of course, is very broad. So it includes not only other techniques like EEG, which is, um, as you may know, a, a technique for recording uh, electrical activity of, of the brain from uh, sensors placed across the scalp. Um, but neuroscience writ large also includes a, a heavy overlap with psychopharmacology and psychiatry. And so the, the, the intersection with law is a very broad one about how people's brains function in ways that are relevant to law, things like memory, things like reliability of eyewitness testimony and that sort of thing. But it is the case that, that more recently some of the, the newer techniques like fMRI and others are, um, are, are often being offered in court as sort of the, the latest and greatest, for better or for worse. What are the limitations of neuroscientific evidence? So there are a wide variety of limitations that accompany the impressive capabilities of, for example, fMRI. Um, one is that today's brain is not yesterday's brain. We don't know that the way a brain is operating at this moment in time is meaningfully similar to the way it was operating at the time of, for example, a criminal act that may have been six months ago. We know that, as always, uh, correlation is not causation. So the fact that a lot of people who have a particular brain feature um, have been arrested for a particular kind of, of crime tells us nothing about whether or not there are lots of other people who have those brain features who are walking around in society who don't commit those sorts of acts. And so we don't want to be casual about assuming important causal relationships between particular brain features and uh, particular brain functions. Um, we also want to uh, recognize that a lot of these techniques, and again, choosing fMRI as an example, are built on inferences about brain function. So, for example, fMRI is designed to infer things about neuro, uh, neuronal function on the basis of non-invasively perceived changes in uh, ratios of, of oxygenated blood to deoxygenated blood. So 
on the one hand, these techniques are very valuable in learning certain things about the brain. On the other hand, they are not typically uh, something that we can assume enables us to to read out something extremely specific about what a person is thinking. Um, so, so these these techniques are are very powerful, but at, at the same time, they're not. Um, windows into each individual thought itself. They can, for example, tell us whether or not somebody's thinking about faces or places. They can sometimes give us clues as to whether or not somebody recognizes an image or scene that's um, shown to them visually. And there's a lot of promise in these techniques that may be legally relevant. But at the moment, it's still going to be a very careful legal assessment as to what the legitimate inferences are to draw from the data that neuroscientists may be presenting. Is neuroscience usually used to try to mitigate someone's culpability? Well, we've, we've certainly seen efforts, uh, some of them successful, some not so, to introduce neuroscientific evidence at, at different points in a trial, and in particular in different points in, in a criminal trial, um, which is the basis of your question. Um, there are two very, very different stages in criminal trials that I think the public sometimes confuses, and that is one is the liability phase or the culpability phase in which somebody is, is being assessed for whether or not they should be convicted of a crime. There's a very distinct phase, the sentencing phase, at which the court has to decide, given that this person has been convicted, to what sentence uh, uh, should they be subject? And so neuroscience can sometimes be offered by attorneys who are trying to argue that their clients could not have had a legally necessary state of mind. So, for example, the, the instance that might come most vividly to mind is one of insanity. If a person is completely insane, then they typically didn't have the mental state necessary to have been convicted of the, of the crime, which typically requires not only a bad act, but also that it had been done with one of several categories of bad mental state. Put another way, if you do something completely accidentally, you're generally not uh, convicted of, of a crime, even if the harm that you committed would otherwise have been criminal if you had intended it on purpose. Um, the, that introduction of neuroscience tends, and I think quite properly so, to be relatively um, uh, rare and, uh, and, and not to be effective in, in any really broad sense of the matter. I mean, obviously in cases where there is insanity, for example, there are often other pieces of important evidence other than neuroscientific evidence. And, you know, know something about how this person has been behaving just by interviewing them with a clinical psychologist, for example, or, or other witnesses, uh, where the neuroscientific evidence in the criminal context tends to be a bit more effective, although, again, not uniformly so, is in the context of mitigating a person's sentence. So, for example, an attorney might argue, okay, my client has been convicted of having done this, but on the basis of some particular anomalies in the defendant's brain that we can, we can point to, 
he's really not as uh, as bad a person as other people might be who did the same thing. Um, so to take an, an extreme example, if a person had uh, a large piece of shrapnel embedded in their prefrontal cortex, uh, which is involved in important decision-making and impulse control and these sorts of things, you might say, well, the person is still responsible for his behavior because he's acting typically in society in a way that enables him to function. Um, on the other hand, he's not rowing with all his oars in the water, and therefore perhaps we won't sentence him to the maximum. We might sentence him to something a little bit less. I'm taking no position on whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. I'm just saying that sometimes attorneys will make that argument, and sometimes uh, jurors or judges will agree. Okay, so if someone, say a psychopath, can be shown to have abnormal brain activity, maybe that person isn't guilty in the sense of being strictly responsible for his or her actions, but it's still a really dangerous person. How should the legal system balance between protecting citizens from dangerous people on the one hand and acknowledging that danger might stem from biological abnormalities over which a person might not have any control? Right, so that's a good question and it's a hard question and there's no single answer. And it's not a question that neuroscience by itself can answer. The real question is what goals uh, are assigned to the legal system by our democracy? What is it that we want our legal system to do? And the answer is that often we want multiple things, and those things sometimes cut in opposite directions. So, for example, in the criminal case, there's, there's a part of society that wants the legal system to, to vent the retributive sense that the, the population has, that this is a bad person who did a bad thing for a bad reason, and we should therefore treat them badly in kind. Uh, on the other hand, there are people who think, well, let's not give too much vent to our retributive instincts and let's instead focus on deterrence. Let's focus on trying to keep the population safe either by keeping this guy off the streets because we think he's a recidivist or by inspiring other people on the basis of the way we treat this guy to not behave the way he did. And so um, you, can, you can see that, that with neuroscientific evidence this could cut in opposite directions. Um, you know, the so-called double-edged uh, sword argument that if a person's brain is damaged in a way that makes them more likely to commit crimes, you might say, on the one hand, well, this person is less culpable than you or I because he's starting at a disadvantage and therefore we shouldn't hold him as responsible and therefore we shouldn't punish him as extremely. But on the other hand, you might say, precisely because this person's brain is damaged the way it is, this person is unusually dangerous and therefore we should be particularly um, reticent to release them back into the population and that therefore we should give them a greater sentence rather than a lesser sentence. And so neuroscience can't solve that, uh, that tension, but the hope of, of those who've been um, trying to do this sort of research is that it can inform the decision-making and maybe help the legal system understand the, the context and the defendant in a more, uh, a more sophisticated and deeper way. 
Do you think neuroscience can offer ways of treating biological tendencies towards violence? Well, I, I, I think that's, I think that's mostly far off in the future. It's not inconceivable. For example, we know that some kinds of uh, depression, some kinds of uh, seizures, some kinds of uh, body shaking, um, consequent to various diseases, can be uh, controllable, at least partially, through various kinds of neuroscientific interventions, like implanting electrodes that um, enable what's called deep brain stimulation. So in theory, that could also be applied to a variety of other behavioral abnormalities, including things that might contribute to crime. Um, there have even been some techniques to treat depression that use uh, a magnetic field uh, pulsed across the, the skull into brain tissue to affect the way that, that neurons are firing. So in theory, that could be uh, a, an application for, for treatment. On the other hand, I think I share with a lot of people a deep concern that that that's also a scary future. The idea of meddling in people's brains in order to try to get them to behave the way you want them to behave is not something that we can or should undertake uh, very lightly. So it's conceivable that there may be some kinds of, of, of treatments that are, are neuroscientific, um, on the other hand, I, I think the more invasive the technique, the, the greater the concern. Of course, all sorts of techniques that involve even things like training people to meditate or to, to engage in um, empathic uh, understanding and reasoning, these are, of course, neuroscientific techniques as well. They're just more typical neuroscientific techniques of trying to change the way people's brains think through training. Is there high acceptance of neuroscientific evidence in the legal system, or is there a barrier against its being admitted in courts? The way that courts accommodate neuroscientific information or don't uh, is as variable as, as the courts themselves and the people in it. So it depends a lot on the jurisdiction. It depends a lot on the legal uh, rules and precedents within a jurisdiction. And of course, a lot depends on the particular context. Who is the person here? Is this a civil case or a criminal case? What's the burden of proof? What's at issue? And what is the argued connection between the particular neuroscientific feature and the behavior at issue? Sometimes that's going to be a connection that's more, uh, more uh, easily drawn and sometimes one that's highly, highly speculative. So there are certainly examples of, of courts that go either way. For example, the um, federal courts in the, the federal court in the Semrau case uh, tried a couple years ago uh, was a, a case for Medicare fraud, and the defendant wanted to introduce fMRI evidence for purposes of lie detection, or as the de defendant referred to it, truth verification. And the court had to, for the first time, really engage in uh, a lengthy and intense hearing outside the purview of the, of the jury to decide whether or not the jury was even going to be allowed to hear that kind of evidence. Of course, the jury can then decide whether they weigh it heavily or not at all, but the threshold question was whether or not they should even hear it. And the judge in that case declined to admit the evidence. On the other hand, there are cases in which uh, judges have decided to allow 
neuroscientific evidence, and it's had very concrete, important effects on the outcome. For example, in the case of uh, Grady Nelson, tried in a Florida court a few years ago for the murder of his wife, he was quickly convicted, but at the sentencing phase, his attorney introduced uh, a neuroscientific expert to talk about a, a kind of variant on EEG evidence called QEEG, which enables a, a, a more a quantitative amalgamation of EEG evidence into something more colorized and visual, uh, a little bit like fMRI. And the argument there was uh, to the jury, which in this case had to decide whether or not he was going to be executed or get life in prison without parole, the defendant's life is literally hanging in the balance here, and the attorney is arguing with this evidence uh, that the defendant's brain activity is such that he's sufficiently different from the ordinary kind of criminal who might have committed this act that you should give him the benefit of the doubt and not execute him and instead give him life behind bars. He shouldn't be held as accountable as other defendants similarly uh, situated without such a brain condition. Uh, so the, the threshold for admitting the evidence is much more generous at the sentencing stage than it is at the, at the liability stage, irrespective of the strength or weakness of the evidence. What's interesting about this case is how the jurors reacted to it, and that is that two jurors came out to talk to the press after the defendant was given life in prison without parole by the, the narrowest of, of margins in the jury's vote, Two, defense, two uh, jurors came out and said, we were deeply affected by the neuroscientific evidence and it turned our votes around. So what is either interesting and encouraging on one hand or troubling on the other, depending on how you look at it, is the extent to which this evidence played such a powerful role in the jury's decision. Um, with respect to to some kinds of, of, of evidence, for example, in federal courts, there's a so-called uh, Daubert hearing, which defines whether or not scientific uh, testimony through an expert witness should be admitted. And there are a variety of criteria there um, that are not necessarily exhaustive, but are just sort of illustrative for the court to to think about whether or not on balance this evidence should reach the jury. It involves things like whether or not the technique has been uh, tested, whether or not the error rates are known, whether it's been subjected to peer review and publication, these sorts of things, whether it's, of course, relevant to the, um, the issue to be decided and how it has been accepted or not generally within that particular scientific community. So the courts are not making these decisions just entirely off the cuff. They have a fair amount of guidance as to the bases for their decisions, but the decisions ultimately are theirs, and so not surprisingly, courts are coming out differently in, uh, in different cases. One thinks of science as offering relatively objective information. What does it mean that both the plaintiffs and the defendant's sides can call on neuroscientists to argue for opposite sides of the same case. Interpreting brain activity and imaging can get thorny for even credentialed scientists, so I'm wondering how juries assimilate this information, especially when it's potentially being presented from two different angles. Yes, so there are a number of examples in which 
highly qualified neuroscientists have been on opposite sides of a case. And this is not entirely surprising because as in many disciplines, uh, experts can uh, agree about some fundamentals and then disagree about some details. And so this is still often being being sorted out on a case-by-case basis. It makes a big difference whether or not um, this is a case about uh, a, a gambling addict or alleged addict who committed uh, a crime of embezzlement, or this is a case about uh, someone who very violently uh, stabbed and murdered another, or this is somebody who engaged in insider trading. There are a wide variety of different kinds of uh, criminal acts uh, on which neuroscience might be theoretically relevant, and the connections to be drawn between a particular feature in the brain and a particular uh, way in which that varies from uh, from whatever we may know about the baselines for that condition, and the connection between that and the specific behavior of which a person is accused under the specific contexts in which they behaved. Um, these are highly individualized assessments, and so not surprisingly, experts may disagree about what are the proper inferences to draw from various brain data. And this highlights actually one of the, the complicated things about the intersection of, of law and neuroscience, and that is that we want our scientists and our scientists are trained to be very skeptical about uh, about causal relationships unless they're demonstrated at roughly 95% uh, probability. Our legal system is frequently tasked with making a decision right now about this person with always attendant conditions of uncertainty. And those conditions of uncertainty may be uh, far less than 95%. So the legal system has set up different thresholds for decisions. Sometimes a preponderance of the evidence is required for one side to win. Sometimes one side must prove, as in criminal cases, that um, uh, the defendant committed the crime uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, These are thresholds that are not only verbal rather than quantitative, but even to the extent they're quantitative, they're very different from the thresholds that scientists typically operate with. And so the legal system is trying to get information from scientists that increase or decrease the probability of various facts that may be relevant to an assessment. And that that relevance is, at the end of the day, a legal decision, not a scientific one. And so hearing from from opposite sides about the strengths and weaknesses of various inferences that one might draw from neuroscientific data is precisely the sort of thing that that one hopes uh, courts will be be confronted with. The thing that I would worry about more is if um, neuroscientific evidence were being introduced by one side without being uh, skeptically challenged by the other. How would you like to see the legal system incorporate neuroscience moving forward? In my view, the legal system should turn to sources of information from whatever discipline derived anytime the information is likely to provide a net benefit to the things law is 
assigned by society to, uh, to try to accomplish. I think neuroscientific evidence is just one kind of evidence that may sometimes be valuable to the legal system. I think it should always be weighed in conjunction with other kinds of evidence as well. I don't think there's anything that makes this kind of evidence somehow metaphysically superior to other kinds of evidence. It's just more evidence and it's enabling us to see in some context a little bit deeper into the relationships between uh, behavior and brain structure and function. But I think the key thing to keep in mind is that here, as any time the legal system is dealing with scientific information or indeed other information that's that's uh, somewhat specialized or technical in nature, is that the legal system needs help and guidance in trying to separate the wheat from the chaff. Now, obviously, the adversarial system is set up as it is in part to try to encourage the parties to expose the weaknesses in each other's arguments. And so one hopes that frequently that will, by its very nature, help to expose the wheat and the chaff. But other ways of doing so involve trying to educate players within the legal system, attorneys, judges, jurors, uh, parole officers, police officers, um, these sorts of, of participants in the, in the system, as to the distinctions between what some people think neuroscience can do and what it actually can and cannot do. So, for example, the MacArthur Foundation Research Network on Law and Neuroscience, which I have the honor to direct, is not only trying to explore ways in which neuroscience may be useful to the legal system, but we are also and particularly trying to explore ways to help the legal system identify the differences between wheat and chaff so that they can understand when, on the basis of existing techniques and the important limitations of those techniques, which accompany the abilities of those techniques, to understand when those can yield certain kinds of inferences that are important and valuable to the legal system and when they can't. So all of this is about what inferences should the legal system draw from the evidence. And we and others have been trying to, to help legal participants learn about and understand so that when they encounter this kinds of evidence, uh, as, as courts increasingly are doing, they're better equipped to know how to handle it. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay, that's it for this Science in the City podcast. For more, visit scienceinthecity.org and please feel free to email us anytime at scienceinthecity at nyas.org. For more science news, you can also keep up with us on social media. We're Sci and the City on Twitter and Science and the City on Facebook. Please be in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.